Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another Mid-Atlantic podcast where we delve into the fascinating world of politics and culture. Now, first, before we start the show, I want to extend a special invitation to all of our listeners. Join us for a live interview with Hunter Walker and Lupi B. Lupin, the authors of The Truth, Progressive Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party. This insightful discussion is scheduled for Wednesday, January the 31st at 11.30am Eastern Time, which is 4.30pm London Time. Don't miss this opportunity to hear directly from the authors about their perspectives on the Democratic Party's future. To get the Zoom link, simply go to royfield.com and click on sign up to join our newsletter. It's an event you won't want to miss. Also next week, we'll be doing a show with Professor Rami K. Kahuri of the American University in Beirut, where we will be discussing the future of Palestine. Both of these shows you will have a link for if you join our newsletter, and both will be posted on our YouTube channel. So please go there and subscribe. So it's Mid-Atlantic Podcast on YouTube. We need your support. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we delve into the intricate world of politics and policy up from both sides of the Atlantic. Today, we're excited for a one-to-one, an in-depth interview, a chat with our esteemed panellist and friend, Steve O'Neill. Steve's diverse background spans education, politics and international polity, and it offers a unique lens to our conversation, particularly his intriguing shift from the Lib Dems to Labour. Steve embarked on his career in the civil service, focusing on education during the pivotal era of British politics, the end of New Labour in 2009 and the onset of the coalition government. His insights provide a rare glimpse into the governmental shifts during crucial times. In 2013, Steve ventured into political strategy with the Liberal Democratic Party and specifically with their policy unit, significantly contributing to the 2015 election manifesto. This period was also somewhat crucial as the Lib Dems faced a major setback post-election grappling with the loss of trust over the tuition fees pledge. Subsequently, Steve's path has led him to the non-profit sector, working with health charities and universities to influence government policy, leveraging his rich political and educational experience. Steve's stint in New York included a placement with the United Nations uh, and somewhat enriched his grasp of global policy adding an international dimension to his expertise. In 2019, he launched the Nomad's Land podcast, probing into the complexities of political division and the search for unity in a divided world. Steve is also a writer for The New Statesman and The Independent, which further cements his status as a thoughtful commentator on contemporary politics. Steve, thrilled to have you. What have I missed out there? I think that's a pretty good summary and some very kind words. It's always lovely to, to talk to you, Warfield. 
where, where does the story start, Steve? I'm, I'm always fascinated by people's political stories, by their their formative years, and then how they then make sense out of the world, and then possibly how their political views shift. But where does the Steve O'Neill story start? I don't know if it's unusual or not, but I'm I'm someone who wasn't really interested in politics until I'm going to say 23, 24 years old. So you mentioned that I started in the British civil service, which for your US and Canadian listeners may or may not know it is not a political job. It's a bureaucratic job where you're politically impartial. Um, and I just started working for a government department. So a, lot, a lot of what I learned about policy, politics was from the day job. And it wasn't from um, any kind of history of activism or we were a family that was very engaged in politics. I wasn't very engaged in politics and I learned by doing. Now, as we might get, get into later on, I think looking back, you can then see, oh, actually, the things around you that you weren't aware of, some of them were a bit political, some of them shaped your views. For me, actually, I felt a bit like a blank slate when I started the, my career, really. I, I, I wasn't that into politics. Yeah, I find that really strange, specifically if you go into the civil service, because I would have thought, but maybe I'm just idealistic, that there's some level of you want to serve Britain, the state, the the public. And then with that comes some level of surely a, a political drive. That's what I would have thought. I think, there, I think you're right, there is. But the way that felt for me at least was actually there's a really interesting set of issues that we can solve and make the world better or make their country better. And the civil service tends to be working on those policy issues. For me, it was education, is how can you get standards up in schools? How can you reduce gaps in, in reduce the gaps in education that lead to inequalities later? Those kind of things were really fascinating issues and also a chance to make things better. Now, I'm alluding to, aren't I, certain political, progressive maybe ideas. And But for me at the time, that was just simple. Oh, this sounds fascinating. Let's try this as a sort of a young man at the time. And from there, I think I sort of started to learn about politics as well and develop views. And obviously, as you said, in 2013, then I got a job in politics slightly unexpectedly to me, but then I was thrust right into the middle of it at that point. You're apolitical. I was then. And I'm not now. Why did you decide that you need to throw your lot in with, with Nick Clegg? It starts by what I learned from the civil service was that a lot, I learned the obvious thing, that a lot of the big ideas and a lot of the important stuff happens in politics. Um, and so I started to become fascinated, not just in how the government delivers stuff, but how these ideas get forged and how these decisions get made. At the time, I suppose I was working with some Lib Dems in who, Lib Dem ministers and Lib Dem special advisors. And I, I thought I quite liked what, what I saw in a way. And I gave, that, I gave them quite a bit of sympathy for what I still thought at the time was doing the right thing, keeping the country show on the road. We can revisit that as well. And trying to constrain the worst bits of the Conservative government, which was a line that they would have privately, at least if not publicly, have said at the time. Uh, so I had a fair bit of sympathy at that point. And that's when the job came up. Now, in the politics of the time, maybe a bit about what has changed now is I probably thought a couple of things were true as well, which one is that you didn't really have much of a choice but to do some form of austerity. And I think that has been possibly proved wrong. And I gave him a, a benefit of the doubt on that. And also, I'm not sure at the time I, I accepted that they didn't maybe have a choice of not really going into coalition or I didn't think they could necessarily had the chance to go in with Labour or to very easily stay out. Now, I think that thinking back, I think I too easily believe some of the things that people said at the time. I think, it, I think they probably did have more choices than than that. But at the time, my view was, oh, actually, they're, they're doing their best in a bad situation. And that, that made me quite sympathetic. This is a new government, and it's a new kind of government. A radical, reforming government where it needs to be, and a source of reassurance and stability at a time of great uncertainty in our country too. David has spoken about many of the challenges we all face. The economy still struggling to get to its feet, the public finances in a mess, our troops engaged in a difficult and lasting conflict that requires resolution, our society still scarred 
by too much unfairness and inequality. Our politics not yet recovered from the hammer blows of recent months. And at a time of such enormous difficulties, our country needed a strong and stable government. It needed an ambitious government, determined to work relentlessly for a better future. And that is what we have come together in this coalition to provide. This is a government that will last. Not because of a list of policies, important though they are, not because it will be easy, there'll be bumps and scrapes along the way. We are different parties and we have different ideas. This is a government that will last despite those differences because we are united by a common purpose for the job we want to do together in the next five years. So tell us about why you believe that the way for the country to get out of the global slump, which was 2008, was austerity as prescribed by, by Osborne. Because I didn't. But I thought you said you just did. That you believe- Not by Osborne. Not by Osborne. But that was a quite extreme version. So back, back in 2010, all three major parties offered some form of austerity. And the Osborne one was the most extreme version. Now, what... And I'm now fast forward. Now, I'm now in thinking about 2013 and where I've had a bit of a chat, you know, chatting to the sort of advisors to people like Vince Cable and people like Dan Alexander was a politician who was in the Treasury at that point. And their view is, oh, we went in and then the civil servants, not the Tories, and there's a bit of sleight of hand with this as well, but so basically showed us the books and they were really bad and we had no choice. That was That's the line you'd get from the Dems at the time. And also that's what a lot of civil servants, I think, accepted as well was oh we're in this situation we have to cut spending now that's not to say at any point that it should have been as much as Osborne advocated or went for he actually didn't cut nearly as much as he threatened to in the early part of that government or in the lead up to the election the other thing of course is that there's how you do it as well and and some of the individual cuts that were made were I watched really bad and one of the things that I think ultimately turned me off the Lib Dems was they would be too ring to defend some of these things, actually. Or oh, let's go along with them. But yeah, I, I accepted that I think something that was wrong, which is that you, you did you were forced to by the economics to cut back. And I think actually you could have done it to a much lesser extent now, thinking back and it, it, it you could have avoided a lot more. I I want to go back a step because you you're in the civil service uh, and then all of a sudden you join not all of a sudden, you join the It was a bit all of a sudden to be honest. Okay, it's a, and then you decide, you know what, I, I'm going to I'm going to join government, and then you're having conversations with people like Vince Cable. How did that seem that you were potentially that you were actually that close to government ministers, to decision makers, to real decision makers? Um, explain that. It, it's it's a very weird experience actually because a you're going from your non political a political civil servant objective in theory all this stuff to being to actually working for one of the teams working on the sides and so that that feels weird in itself but also you literally go from people like Nick Clegg and Vince Cable and to be clear I didn't really work particularly closely with Vince Cable it was more his advisors I did with a bit a little bit with Nick Clegg and people like David Lord. But, but suddenly everyone says, oh, this Nick, that, David, that. And, you, and it, it's all very first name terms. Whereas in the civil service, it's the Secretary of State or the Minister. And it, it's a very weird feeling, actually. You're, go, you're going from this big kind of ivory tower place, not literally an ivory tower, but it feels a bit like one in, in government departments. It's a bit of a disorganized chaos, rabbit warren type thing. Westminster's rabbit warren, political parties are completely bizarre networks. And suddenly you're in the midst of that. Yeah, that, that felt very strange. It's a very different kind of, environment to be i felt quite weird actually making that jump it all felt very strange i mean were you basically on board with lib dem policies did you join in 2013 wanting to get rid of tuition fees did you want to break up the, the banks and to get them lending again the match that were you on board with the fundamental economic and political agenda of the lib dem I think it was broader than that. I think actually what at the time, and this has, I, this has changed now for me, but uh, and thinking back, let's go back to, to 2010 times, the world didn't feel quite as, as forced as it was now. And I was in a sort of camp of, let's split the difference a bit. 
let's maybe this is something natural from for some civil someone who's doing a civil servant job for four plus years to think but there's something to be gained from the middle ground essentially and so Lib Dems are the middle party and and we're trying to hold British politics in the center of the time because of course they were holding the conservatives into coalition so really that was it now like the tagline even then in 2013 was stronger economy fairer society that's the sort of line the headline of the manifesto they were doing with that which basically says to the public you think the Tories are good on the economy. We do a bit of that. You think Labour are fairer? We do a bit of that too. Split the difference. It might, it might as well have said split the difference. And that's probably where I was or where I started anyway. Fascinated by coalitions. And you and I know that in British politics, we don't have too many coalitions, not in government anyway. In Europe, super common. And America is just weird the, the way that they split up their way that they run uh, their government it's 2013 and you're part of the policy unit of the Lib Dems and you're in government and you have to write a manifesto which fundamentally is going to say that we've done a good job looking forward to the 2015 election but then you need to put clear water between yourselves and the conservatives just seems philosophically how do you do that? You're the junior party. How do you say, we've done good, but they're not so good? Judging by how the election went, it's quite difficult. It is quite difficult. And the temptation is, if you think about all the people who are inputting into the manifesto, they've all got a bit of a stake in not saying everything was bad, not just because they don't want to be blamed for things that went wrong, but also also they want to feel proud of it. I've seen that with all kinds of people when they work on something, even if they don't start agreeing with it, they get it to somewhere and then they want to defend it naturally. And so I think a mistake that was made a bit was to go along with a little bit too much the coalition era. And now, don't get me wrong, there were one or two good things. Same-sex marriage was in that era, the A budget in that era. It wasn't all, as compared to what came next, all that bad. I don't want to suggest that I'm tarring my ex-colleagues with that kind of brush. But I do think they should have done what you suggested and put clear, clear blue water between them and the Conservatives. And one thing during the campaign, and I was a bit too, I, was, I didn't quite feel brave enough to speak up about this, but one thing I didn't do was say, if we're going to go into another agreement, this is what we'll achieve. This is what we absolutely will insist on. This is our red line. And there was tactical reasons not to do that, but I thought they were weak tactical reasons. And the tactical reasons are, oh, if we say what the red line is, then the price of the next deal can only be the red line. We can't ask for too much more. But also it shows you don't really want to achieve anything. Like, what if you, if, if, for me, if you're going to go into government and certainly you're going to compromise on a lot of things, you want, what's the one big thing we're going to achieve and take away? And part of my experience working there was to realise that they, they didn't really have that when they came in 2010. It should have been forced representation, changed the voting system. And you'll remember they ended up with a bit of a fudge that said, we'll try and get some reform to the House of Lords, which never happened. It ended up being the alternative vote system and they had a referendum on that or the agreement they got with the referendum, which uh, was lost. So they didn't achieve any of those goals. But I, I felt going to 2015, you're going to do it, have a really impressive offer. And don't have to be led to a reform. I, I, I thought, a big thing with the Lib Dems opportunity. They really want to have a society where everyone has an opportunity to be equal, even if they don't necessarily instinctively want to be driven by the state so much. Why not go for something like a really impressive offer on early years, on, on childcare and early education that, that actually equalizes opportunity? It's one of the most powerful things. Well, at least have a strong story on that. And I felt that was the missed opportunity. Um much, Steve, was a body blow that electoral reform was rejected by the British people? If I remember the Liberals and then the Lib Dems for anything policy-wise from the 80s, the 90s, as always we need to get rid of first past the post. It was their mantra, the electoral system is so unfair. We're a mm. third party. We can get 20% of the vote, 23% of the vote, but we don't get 23% of MPs at all. The middle of Britain is not being represented, is not within Parliament. How much of a body blow was that to the Lib Dems? Well, well, in one sense, yeah, it, it was huge because that was the big thing. The kind of deal that it did was, we'll go along with you on the economy 
and try and fix it. Either you'll go along with us and fix politics. That's literally what Clegg said. And it, if you read his book, it's all over it. And that was the big agenda. And of course, it, it failed. It failed. To one sense, disaster. The other sense was that actually people didn't like alternative vote. I didn't mind alternative vote as a system. I thought that sounds fine. But the, the, the difference being, of course, you vote in your own constituency, you can rank which candidates you want to three or whatever it is. And then if your first preference doesn't get it, it goes to the next round and your second preference can be affected. Whereas, of course, PR is the sort of single transferable vote across the whole system. Um, and the Lib Dems really wanted PR. And so a lot of people felt that AV was the worst of all worlds or something they didn't prefer by too much to first pass the post. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was devastating. Other people, I think, felt that the opportunity was already missed. But I think my wider point, and one of the reasons I shifted away a bit, was that actually the issues that Lib Dems end up caring about, and a lot of them are issues that I suspect you and I both, like electoral reform, like government reform, these kinds of things, they tend to be the things they care about the most, not the bread and butter things, not how can you make the health service work, or how can you make the economy work, how can you make wealth inequality reduce. While that's all there, the sort of the central thrust of it, I think, is around these kind of capital liberal issues, which is definitely a place for, but I ultimately wanted to focus on, wanted, would have liked a new political party to focus on more of the bread and butter things. What was Nick Clegg like? It's funny, when, when I think back to that period, I think of Cameron and Osborne. I actually do forget how upfront and centre Nick Clegg was in that coalition government. What was he like to work with? What's he like as a human being? I can't say I work with him day to day. He's a very charming guy. He's a very nice guy. Very impressive in, in, in that way. And also speaks about four languages. I remember he walked to the office, say hello, and then he'd pick up the phone and start speaking either Dutch or Spanish. I can't remember what it was now because he's got his parents Dutch and his wife Spanish, that kind of thing. And very cosmopolitan, very European. I remember they there's the... The random, random anecdote, but I remember the the kind of they had a sort of party, a drinks party, to say goodbye to everyone after the election, and we sat down. I remember him like leading the dancing sort of thing, and being very curious. And like, you know, he's a, like a, I think a very able, very charming sort of person. I can't really speak to his motivations or anything like that in a really detailed way. More than that, there's going to be a, an election on May the seventh in 2015. Uh, the Conservatives, led by David Cameron. Uh, win an outright majority, 331 seats. Uh, Labour comes second, and you guys take a hell of a beating. What's the mood in the party? By the way, so I, I sit opposite the guy who did the polling, and I remember saying to him, hey, so go on, what do you think is really going to happen? I'm going to the bookies. No, that sounds a bit like insider trading now, doesn't it? Because you probably shouldn't have access. But And he said... What I expect today, which is probably cut in half. So Lib Dems had just under 60 seats. It was probably only 30. And I remember thinking that feels about right. And that's what he said. And he is possible. He knew it could probably be worse than that, but wasn't telling me. But I don't think so. I think he was telling me the the truth. Um, And of course, I lost my money. Um, By the way, uh, my job was in part to prepare for what was going to come next. And so I had... On my desk, and I had an intern from a Swedish political party who had been seconded over who had printed out so much paper. But for every commitment in the manifesto, I don't know if you've ever read a manifesto, don't because they're boring. They're basically a bullet point list of we will do X, Y, Z. And some of it's really big stuff and some of it's really technical stuff. For pretty much every bullet, there's a two pages saying what that meant. And the reason for that was in a negotiation with, I was hoping it would be Ed Miliband, but it or could have obviously been Cameron, depend, it had it been a different result, and been a hung parliament. This was going to, we were going to go to the negotiating team, here, here's this, these are the things, this is what it means for each commitment. Now, I doubt they would have gone through every single line by line, but certain things would have come up. So I, I was prepared that. So for me, it was quite like, we were taking it seriously, is my point, or I was taking it seriously anyway. I think some people were definitely jumping ship at that point anyway, but taking seriously the, the idea that this could be some kind of Lib Dems could be in power for another few years. Of course, it wasn't the case. It wiped out down to, I should know the number, but I think it was less than 10 seats. I think it might have been 9, 10, 11 seats from 56. So completely wiped out. The polls have closed the general election. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. ...is over, and our exit poll is predicting that the Conservatives are the largest party. Lord O'Donnell, would you believe that... That an exit poll, if this exit poll is remotely accurate, would there be any need for coalition negotiations or would David Cameron uh, simply carry on? Well, if the exit poll turns out to be correct, then I think we're, we're looking at a scenario where David Cameron remains as Prime Minister. Fitz Cable is out. Tania Mathias, uh, he joins the long list uh, of senior Liberal Democrats to lose their seats tonight. Big thanks to Vince Cable, who has been an amazing local MP. Nick Clegg, is he going to be the next to go? Hard on the heels of Nigel Farage. Of course, it must be remembered, he's back in Parliament. He won his seat, one of the few Lib Dems that did. But is he going to continue to lead the party? We'll find out. Clearly, the results have been immeasurably more crushing and unkind than I could ever have feared. For that, of course, I must take responsibility. And therefore, I announce that I will be resigning as leader of the Liberal Democrats. I've just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, and I will now form a majority Conservative government. I've been proud to lead the first coalition government in 70 years, and I want to thank all those who worked so hard to make it a success, and in particular, on this day, Nick Clegg. But the next day, I was out late, by the way, that night. Everyone was out late, watching the results come in, probably having too many drinks. The next day... Obviously, the results come in, and we get a memo, or someone says, I personally can't remember, go around the corner, there's like a, a nice venue, Nick Clay's giving a speech, and we all know what's coming, and he gives a, at the time, I don't even remember, quite a famous speech about the, the politics of hope is losing out the politics of fear. It's actually quite a really good line, and, and to be fair to him, I think that's one of his best speeches, and because what we saw after that, of course, was, that was 2015, think of Brexit, think of across the pond, Trump, think of what's happened in Europe since, it was quite forward-looking in that sense. But we all come out of that building feeling a bit sad and people are all a bit knackered. And the Sky News cameras are all there. And I've got friends screenshotting me. And he's, hey, Steve, look. And it's basically, the, the, the caption might as well, well been, look at all the sad lib dems on TV. So there was that. And the, the lady next to me was a little bit tearful as well. So I was just trying to make her feel better. That was, that was the picture. So that was the next day. Then went back to the offices and actually the late Paddy Ashdown was there. And actually he was he gave a very emotional sort of thank you speech to everyone who'd been working on stuff. And even he was a bit tearful and a bit disappointed. And that was quite a moment where it was like, wow, this guy was Paddy Ashdown, a proper political figure who's for many years, really experienced. And he had, I think, reluctantly backed the whole coalition thing, having been pretty against it. Many books document this. What why do you say reluctantly? Is that because Really, he'd have been more comfortable doing going into coalition with with the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely. He was a kind of progressive alliance, I think, guy at some point. I and mean, famously, he had been in talks with Blair before it became really clear that Blair was going to win a a landslide. So I think he would have been again someone that I met a few times. You no, know, never, not don't, don't didn't have 
very close relationship with. But yeah, I imagine him, like most Lib Dems, would have been very, a little bit shell-shocked that they actually ended up going to college and Tories. I think that would have, you asked them by 10 years beforehand, they would have been very surprised. So I think it it probably took a bit of bravery from people to do it, if you call it that. And yeah, pretty, he was pretty devastated to see, but he would have built up that that bulk of seats over many years, not quite to the 60 level. That was, I think, Charlie Kennedy. But yeah, you can see why he felt that, you know, he would have felt very strongly about on that morning of the 8th. Absolutely. And, and it's a party that hadn't seen power since, what, the 19... Is it the 1930s? There's a, there's a the coalition government in the 1930s, but I always get confused there because there's a national conservatives and national... Right? I'm confused, but let's yeah. say it's Lloyd George in the 20s. Let's just say tonight. Yeah, it's, it's back about that, those days. Yeah. Yeah. So the Liberal Party hasn't seen power since then and then goes down to a crashing defeat. But most political soothsayers always say that in coalition, it's the smaller party that takes the shellacking, isn't it? But was there a hope that the Lib Dems were going to buck that and almost be like, I don't know, let's say that the Liberal Party in Germany, who always seem to be within power, whether it's the SDP or the, or in effect, the Conservatives that are in power in Germany. Was that fundamentally the hope that you guys can literally hold the centre and the rise of smaller parties has been this slow but organic thing within British politics, the SNP in Scotland, Plaid Cymru to a much lesser degree in Wales and stuff, that actually, even with first-past-the-post, that you guys could maintain almost like a, a governmental presence. Yeah, and that was definitely the hope. And probably the more realistic hope was that shellacking wasn't going to be quite so bad, the kind of 30 seats, not nine seats thing. But there was definitely that hope. There was definitely the, the hope that I think showing coalitions could work. And that was one of the reasons why they, I think, made the mistake of not standing up more publicly, at least, to the Tories and to, and to not containing austerity and its worst effects more. Because so I think they were so keen to show that the government and coalition could work and be stable. And, and to be fair, it was and did. But I think it would have actually been more effective had they come out and been stronger. But that was the motivation to show it can work show it's a good option and then yeah you can split the difference and I, I think no one in their wildest dreams thought they was gonna you know grow support from there but i think pretty credibly it seems it almost seems crazy to say it now but i think pretty credibly go wind the clock back to 2014 could well have on an optimistic scenario kept 30 40 seats and been holding the balance of power again 2016 we're going to have brexit where fear wins out over hope nick clegg was most definitely correct but give us your political journey. You're a member of the Lib Dems. You've actually you, you're part of the governing part. You've written the manifesto. The manifesto has been burnt by the British public, or well, you helped write the manifesto, I should say. The British public has completely, utterly rejected it. What happens to you politically? 2015, 2016 with Brexit. 2017 when Theresa May calls and elects on June the eighth. Yeah, and by 2017, I wasn't involved and I already drifted away a little bit, but I was on a bad run because obviously being involved, then in 2015, wipe out. Then I was a sort of tacit volunteer on the Remain campaign and that didn't go very well. I don't know, we discussed this. I then went to New York and I wasn't there for this reason, but in my spare time, I volunteered for Hillary for America. And they were busting us out to Philadelphia and things to campaign. Obviously, that's a, a swing state. And do phone banks, and that one didn't go very well either. I had a bad run of elections, but at the time, of course, Bre- I don't know if you remember London or whether you were- Steve. Steve, do we want you in as a member of the Labour Party? <laughs> I was like, he's one of my friends. Say they'd say, "Why don't you go and join the Tories?" And then they'll surely lose. No, I did actually. I had a win because I was supporting Labour PPC for his to become a candidate, and I was on his voting for him, and he won. So the, the curse is broken. Because it's broken, I can reassure you of that. I hope anyway. Hold on, I was in America and the Trump campaign, but um, and comparing it to London and Brexit, the the moves like after both those that referendum and that election were in London, it was incredibly dire. Obviously, London heavily remained voting and and a real shock. I'll let, it showed our complacency, I think, partly, um, but a real shock 
on that morning after the referendum with Farage calling it um, V-Day and things. But that doesn't compare to what it felt like in New York that night. So I went to the Javid Center, which is where Hillary was going to give the speech. It's a big glass ceiling. It's a huge sort of New York conference center in Manhattan. And I thought I wanted to be this. So I was just in the crowds outside, just go and watch the big screens. And of course, then one lesson I've learned the election night is that when you see the swingometer or the wind blowing one way, the temptation is to think if it's not your way, all oh, things can change. It never does. It almost never does. It's always when, the, when it starts going that way, the writing's on the wall. And that is what was happening then. But there was certainly a feeling that the world was politically, the West was having a different kind of moment. And it was one that's more divisive. And I suppose something with me, I started to think, no more fence sitting in the sense that this is quite bad. The, the right is picking up in different ways in Britain and America. And I've always felt quite close to America, my family over there as well. So it is, other than the fact that there's their political importance, it matters to me personally too. It Something made me think, have I been sitting on the fence a bit with being with a centrist party? Really, do I want to support a more progressive party? So... I think that started then. Um, but the world the world was changing as well, I think. And that, that was a feeling of the world changing. We're in New York as the land of the free chooses its destiny. All eyes in Florida at the moment. For both sides, there is still all to play for. Mr. Trump is ahead by 1%, 49 to 48. Now, this is starting to look like a much better night for Donald Trump and his campaign team than any of the pollsters have predicted. He's doing very well. It is a real nail-biter. I just want to uh, go over to the Trump headquarters. Mr. Trump hasn't just won Ohio, he's won it big time. And in modern times, the way Ohio goes has been the way the country has gone. North Carolina has, in the last few seconds, just been called for Donald Trump on 51% share of the vote. If she loses Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and uh, Michigan, which is a real possibility now, then she loses the White House. In the last few seconds, they have just called Florida for Donald Trump. That is why it matters. 29 electoral college votes. This is turning out to be the most remarkable political night in modern history. The eyes of the world on the results of the American election. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton to all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. Why did you decide to go to America and and how do you land this cushy job with with the UN? The ultimate fat cat bureaucrat there, right? (laughs) Yeah, I, I actually, so, so I was very lucky. I got a scholarship study, studying the state. And actually, this slightly reflected the fact that I, I never did, was never into politics, went and worked in civil service, went and worked in politics, had this sort of journey, and thought, well, I should probably go back and study it a bit. And did a fascinating course with uh, colleagues from New Zealand, Tanzania, Brazil, all different kind of perspectives. Some of those people have been started in those countries and are now living in the States. But it, that was brilliant. So I was just lucky enough to get funding to go and do that. And then the UN placement was part of that. I did a, I was funded by the University of Scotland there with the UN Development Programme, which, which again was fantastic. It was really good broadening my, my horizons experience. And it timed, to say, with the 2016 presidential election. So I was there for all that. What was the feeling within the UN when Trump uh, became so I wasn't there at the time. I was that I went to the UN probably six months afterwards because that was the beginning. I'd just gone out essentially to New York at that point. I don't really know the feeling. I suspect it probably wasn't good, both for for his kind of faith in intergovernmental organisations. They they were really worried about all that, I imagine. But the kinds of people that tend to work at the UN are probably the kinds of people that lead Democrats. So I'm guessing he was pretty bad mood, but I got not say I was there that day. So you're going to end up back in Britain. Is the first thing you do run to the Labour Party, beg forgiveness for for, for past sins? No, that came that came later because, of course, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. So, as much as my views started to change at that point in time, the Labour Party was quite on the left, and I'm I do consider myself left wing now, but not that kind of left wing, uh, and also was let's just, on that. just yeah. on that because i think the whole labels thing is utterly fascinating because 
I'm, I try and work out where I am. I think I'm pro- progressively going leftwards, but I wouldn't see myself as any kind of radical, though I think maybe 70% of people to the other side of me will say that I'm pretty radical, but I don't think that I am at all. Give yourself a label uh, or at least the direction of travel. What type of leftist are you? I'm very similar to you, actually, in the sense that, as you can tell, I've been the centrist and gone a bit leftwards. So it's, it's the opposite journey, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, centrist. I know, but I'm going the same way. I'm the same <laughs> way. Maybe I started a bit to the right of where you are. We're catching up. I'm trying not to say Blairite, but really that's probably what, what I would be. I think if I was a bit older when New Labour became a thing, I would have certainly been a Labour supporter. And it was the, at the time that I became politically aware, Labour just drifting a bit left, and I was a bit close to the centre at the time. I Yeah, I, I would say I'm on the centre-left, I would say. Yeah, Blair Brown, probably where I find myself now. Having been a bit of a Cleggite, as I said, I've, I've certainly moved away from that. To... You're very comfortable with Keir Starmer. Yeah. I actually, when Keir Starmer, it was partly what he did that he that was what convinced me to join Labour, really. And the stuff he's talking about now, which is down to seriousness, like really looking to focusing on being in government, not protest, not protest. I remember that even in the austerity days, you had a kind of march for the alternative, anti-austerity marches, and yes, opposed austerity, but this was this was socialist worker stuff, and then you had Labour slightly cozying that way a little bit. And I'm thinking. That didn't feel like a serious alternative to what was happening. But I really like what Keir Starmer did, the anti-Semitism stuff, all, this, all that kind of thing needed to be dealt with. That made the left really poisonous and seeing deal so strongly with that, really taking Labour back to the kind of, of the point of us is to be in government, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think it's, you can say, but some people will say, oh, Starmer's just trying to become Blair, sort of thing. I don't think that's right. I think he's probably to the left of that, but uh, he brought the Labour Party back, like kind of that kind of politics. I alluded to it earlier with the talk about the Lib Dems focusing on political reform, focusing on certain important stuff like Lords reform or, or local government reform. But actually, it's the health service, it's the education, it's those other kinds of issues that really make a difference. I think that was the other another reason, and so that kind of. So when I think of the sort of service mentality that they're talking about now, that's what comes to mind for me. I use the phrase ordinary working people a lot because one of these slightly, one of these phrases you can raise your eyebrows to when you've heard it for the 50th time. But I, for me, encapsulating that is like the concerns of people day to day, not political wonkery or not the kind of stuff you might hear it in um, debating groups. And so for me, that's, that's better politics. I hear that and... I think there's a political theorem that you go from a charismatic uh, leader, prime minister, to one who's more of a technocrat, to a get, people get bored and then want a charismatic one again. But, and you mentioned Paddy Ashton. He's a charismatic guy, right? I don't know how down he was with the detail of policy, but he conveyed a third way in British politics. He was a paddy pants down. He's a bit, bit of an action man. Uh, and then I think of Joe Swint- Swinton or other like Lib Dem leaders, and, and there's totally forgettable. Part of politics is a bit of a beauty contest, isn't it? That you've got to be swept up by someone's vision. And one of the problems that I have with Keir Starmer in the way that he is now is... There is a massive open goal in British politics. This Conservative Party has so discredited itself in the last 30 years. And I'm going to absent you, uh, the, the, the Lib Dems in this, that it's the Fishers are there beforehand. Hence, Cameron has to make the deal with the right about having a Brexit referendum. He thinks he's going to defeat that. And we're going to put it away. But it just blows up. And since 2016, we've had the governing party in constant rebellion with itself. And so there is this massive open goal, considering that after 13 years worth of austerity, my hometown of Birmingham um, has just under 50% of adults in poverty. 
30% of, uh, a third of all children are living in poverty. The city's gone bankrupt. Other cities are going bankrupt throughout the UK. We are falling rapidly behind our European counterparts. Here is a time for a leader to say, not that I'm just a grown-up, but I'm going to give the British people a vision and to lead us somewhere, as opposed to we're just going to muddle along, but we're not as dysfunctional as the last lot. And I... And for that reason, considering the deep structural problems that there are in this country, I feel let down by by the man. However, I've said it on this podcast numerous occasions. I think he's saying just about nothing, knowing that the Conservatives are shooting themselves in the foot. It's the second Labour administration, which is going to be the radical one. It, it, It has to be. It has to be. Otherwise, there's going to be a whole load of disappointed left of sent Brits, basically, because the country is working. We have food banks. We have working poor. So this neoliberal model just isn't working. And we need someone really to voice, as opposed to just letting Rishi Sunak and his pals shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I think that's fair and right. I think talking about Starmer, we can say we haven't even got to the point where he's laid out the manifesto yet. So maybe... And hopefully a bit more is coming. And as you say, it's a 10-year project, isn't it? To get back to the kind of, to where we would have hoped to be from the 2010s to now. It's been a really rough time. So it's going to take a while. So yeah, I, I would certainly support a more radical. Yeah, it, it's an open goal right now. There's this Ming Bar strategy you alluded to, which is that just don't mess it up. I like it. I can completely sympathize with that. You could also call it, it's strategic, it's ruthless, it's doing what's necessary to win. And once you set out a big bold vision, it can be attacked. So don't don't need to. I can see that a bit. I would love to hear it too a bit more. The missions they've set out are good and interesting, but they don't really give you that sense you're looking for. And I think I'm hoping that's coming. But yeah, that's coming. But I think actually, yeah, a nice solid poem, then a more radical poem would be great. Slightly on this theme though, because another reason I think for me, I'll be interested in since is your journey too, is that it's become much clearer that the problems that we face, like climate change, like dealing with pandemics, it, it needs big government or bigger government. And I suppose the beginning of the sort of the version of myself that started working in the civil service, I felt I was in a world where it was a bit less obvious that was the case. We felt like, I felt like we had a bit more time for climate change. Maybe we could find softer solutions and things. But actually, for me, it's pretty clear not just that we need to deal with these bread and butter issues of our priority in politics. But actually, it probably is the state that needs to do it. Not necessarily in an old-fashioned way. It doesn't have to be rolling back to nationalizing everything. But we're going to need some pretty big, bold ideas. Like Biden's done in the US, actually. Those kind of stimulus plans, kind of green plans. It's that kind of... Maybe that's the kind of vision you're looking for. No, 100%. I use... So, I your intro, the intro for you today... My good friend Chat GPT four helped me do that. I've put in your the information that you gave me, and then I said I want to mention the defeat in twenty fifteen. I want to mention various things, okay? And it went once. He did a first draft, and then I amended that. And then because I'm dyslexic, I always do check for grammar and clarity. Now AI is an amazing tool. It's potentially going to upend countless industries. It's potentially going to unleash misinformation, willful mis- and disinformation on an industrial level because of cloning. The Br- Britain isn't an island. The British government is not going to be powerful enough to go up against Google, Facebook, Apple, whoever... That's where you need to be um, one of many. So hence, the EU has actually been quite powerful in actually censuring, fining, and shaping the policy of US tech companies within Europe. They are just about skirt around Britain. We're only 67 million people. The EU's 300 and odd. The US is 300 and odd and whatever. We can talk about climate change. You've got to be with other governments to affect change. You've got to be in that forum of the UN and to say and to set policies. Because even if Britain went 
zero tomorrow, it's not going to matter a hill of beans because you need other government to go with you. We have, there is, dependent on who you listen to, there's either a refugee crisis or a migrant crisis, or maybe this is just global shifts, which any economist worth of salt will tell you that Western economies need younger workers because they're an aging population. Now, if you are in concert, if you're Britain in concert with France and the rest of Europe, you can have a better policy around people from outside of the EU coming into the EU. Right. It's just... So that's on the macro level. On the micro level, the last 40 years of neoliberalism, we've given it a good go. We've said, let's sell everything off, even down to the post service. We started off with telecommunications, BT. Remember, it was Busby, the little yellow bird, and Maureen Lippmann. And it was all, and the, the, the idea of the shareholding democracy was going to be great. The, what was that expression from Keir Starmer? Ordinary working people were going to be able to have shares in all of these big state utilities. Pure bunkum. Share ownership is a, a, a fraction, right? It, yeah, it's pension groups. It's the already rich which own all those shares. And actually, we, it's been proven in Britain that even if you don't call us citizens anymore, we're just consumers, as a consumer, public transport is worse it, the prices have gone up and the services got worse as we've deregulated. Ditto energy, whether it's gas, electricity, etc. Now, like you, I'm not saying we should privatise it all tomorrow, but we need a leader who's bold enough to say there are certain key industries which do not work the way that we thought we're going to for the last 40 years. And, and the energy sector is, is, is a key one. And you don't have to privatise it. What you need to do is heavily regulate. That's it, right? Public transport, get it back into public ownership. Full stop. Trains, buses, ordinary working people can afford to get to work on them and have more money in their pockets because they don't need Ubers, they don't need to own cars, etc. Efficient public transport. Energy... Okay, but let's regulate it. These companies are earning record profits at a point when we have record increases in Brits who can't afford to heat their homes without censuring these companies which actually have record profits. So we need a leader who can actually say, we're going to hold these companies to account. And actually, the way that they have worked in Britain is that there are too many small energy companies and that is the reason why they're so uh, exposed to global energy fluctuations in terms of prices, because they're too small. And actually, it doesn't work for the consumer or the citizen. And that's what we need. We need to start rolling this back and, and also to have somebody bold enough to... Forget almost what the Tories are doing, shooting themselves in the foot, to say that to go forward, we need to redress the last 40 years. There's a, a great phrase, and I talked about, you asked me where I was politically, and I said, probably Blair's not about Blair, it's not bad. No, but there's a great Blair phrase, it's about you've got to separate the means from the ends. And what happens a lot in politics, and sometimes with the debates you're talking about, some of this is with the when the right say let's liberalise everything and privatise it, and the left say let's nationalise it, they end up talking about the means. You know, we're for this and we're for that. And what I think you need in the modern world with things like AI is to say what are we after, and it's the actual bit you end up with: the consumers, the citizens. What do we want for them? And what solution is going to get us there? So actually, I'm not too worried about seeing a Labour Party or any left-wing party go for, we must re-nationalise certain industries. We must go back. We must redress and have the NHS exactly how it was 30, 40 years ago. I don't think that probably works anymore. Maybe, maybe in some cases it does, but I'm not across the board. What I want to see is future, you know, look, looking to the future with, with 
the kind of solutions we need for that. And that, that yes, going to have to involve regulating AI and states getting together to do that. It's probably going to need different models of delivering care for in the NHS because in the old days we used to get sick and it's kill or cure. And now it's you've got to live, hopefully, fingers crossed, 30 plus years when, you know, from the ages of 60 to 90 and have a decent quality of life. But you're going to need regular health interventions. You're going to have what, long-term multimorbidities and chronic conditions, to use the kind of some of the jargon and all that. So I do think I want what I'm looking for, and I, what I hope is that the Labour team are working towards you know, the kind of forward-looking agenda for, for Britain that, that might look like some of the things from the past, but actually looks completely different. We know where we were when we had neoliberalism. It, it was something you could say what it was. You had a feel for it. And before, with the growth of the welfare state, Keynesianism, you know what those things were. I think ever since, it's been a while now, ever since sort of the crash and a few years after that, no one's ever defined the next vision, third way or whatever it is. And I think we're still waiting for that. I don't think that needs to happen in the UK by Labour this election. But I think at some point between us across the Western world and maybe wider, because those are the economies we're talking about, I mentioned in first, but... We do need to define what the next ism is. I don't know. I mean, bigger minds can do it. But I think, yeah, we need to find out what it is. And then I'd like you say, see a politician, communicate that with the public and say, this is how we're going to run the economy. This is how we're going to approach these massive issues. God knows how you answer all that, but I'm waiting for it. I'm hoping for it. There is a political theory, which is that paradigm shifts happen in 40-year cycles. Misha Libovich worked out that that in American politics, and he extrapolates this is the same for any maturity democracy, that there's a 40-year cycle. And if we just go to, to UK politics, which is, it's a little bit messier because we don't have fixed election terms like, like the Americans do, but it does work. So in British politics, there's a big paradigm shift after in 1945. Now, it's not exactly... 40 years, but that takes us to the early 1980s and privatization. Because remember, the first few years of Thatcher are a disaster for, for Thatcher, but it's the Falklands Wars so at 82. Uh, and then all of a sudden, she can get a privatization bill through when she comes back into power, etc. So you've got strong welfare state, and then we have uh, privatization or liberalization, whatever you want to call it. The end of that paradigm is now. If you go another 40 years, we're absolutely at the end of it. And I would argue that's one of the reasons why we have had the rise of illiberalism, because we're at the end of proving that to privatize everything, to say you're going to make government smaller, though actually Thatcher makes government bigger, uh, for argument's sake, we spend more on the railways when they're privatised than when, when they were nationalised, just as one example. That actually, for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, what's happened throughout the Western world is the next generation, the millennials, have not been richer than their parents. All the way through the Industrial Revolution, each subsequent generation has been richer. So home ownership is now falling within the UK. And ditto in the US. So there's an open goal in terms of ideology for somebody on the left to come out with a very strong and clear, I don't want to call it the third way, the next way, the next shift, the, the next set of precepts which are going to guide us for the next 40 years. And Hopefully, this politician is going to be British, because really and truthfully, it's a British politician which led us into Reaganomics, Thatcher. She got there first. We are so falling behind. We are so poorer than our equivalent neighbours in Europe, outside of London. I, I go down to London as a Brummie, and it's another world. It's another country. It's another, London is another country in terms of the efficiency of the public transport, the amount of infrastructure. But even in London, there are pockets of absolute deprivation. It's just that in places like Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, they're not pockets. It's whole sections of cities. 
the poverty of expectation and poverty of aspiration. And we need fundamental building blocks to to start build, building that back up. But we need someone to articulate it. Yeah, we do. We do. Although you talk about fundamentals in some ways, it, just getting back to basics would be good. Concrete not falling down in schools would be good. That doesn't take grand visions. That just takes a bit of competent government. Investing, simply investing in schools, investing in health service. I think a, a lot, it's not going to solve all our problems, but just some decent competent government and a bit of spending and building a few things, building some houses probably wouldn't help. So wouldn't help, would help. So I actually like, yeah, we need this vision, but the boring stuff is good too. And I'm pretty confident, like I'm hoping for grand visions from Labour, but I'm confident we're going to get a solid competent government. Touch word when there's a change of government. And actually that is something to be a bit optimistic about. It's not going to solve all the problems, but Actually, just some basic investment, just some sensible management will help, I think, these things. And maybe buy us time for that bigger renewal project. Yeah, uh, absolutely. J- just before we go, I have to ask you the obvious question. So when you did um, apply to join the Labour Party, how, how did that feel? It felt really good in the sense that I felt, I, I, you know, I was quite conscious that I, my views had changed slowly. And, it, you know, I, it was quite a few years between when I worked for the Dems and joining Labour, I've been a Labour member for what, a couple of years now. And it felt really good. I felt like I picked a side. And I've actually been a bit active as well. So I've been campaigning a bit, local party Peckham's for actives, but I've been busting out. I've been to one or two by-elections um, and things. And yeah, and I feel involved now. And it's funny because I didn't quite know how to act. So I, should I, when I meet Labour people, should I blurt out my sins of being an active Dem instantly? Which I've done, done a few times. But you feel, they look at you, it's like, why are you telling me that? Asked you what drink you wanted, that kind of thing. Uh, or do I keep it quiet? And I haven't quite worked out that yet. But it's yeah, it's a bit of a it's a learning curve for me, a bit of a journey. But I'm really enjoying it and looking forward to getting stuck in a bit more. Really, Steve O'Neill, thank you for coming on to Mid Atlantic. I, I would say this anyway, but it's actually true. You're one of our more interesting panelists, Steve. In that, I think just about everybody that is on the panel grew up political i did but with a small p my, my parents were never out campaigning but they were regular working class folk my dad says we always vote labor because it's the party of the working man and things that the scales are against us so that's the reason why we vote labor so having somebody like you on i always think is is brilliant because you have had that political journey you have also um seen the machinery of government and how it truly works in formulating policy. So for that, sir, thank you for being part of the Mid-Atlantic team and thank you for giving us an hour plus of your time. Well, my, my absolute pleasure. I'm sure you're just being too kind to me. I will say, I also think about my dad's views when it was politics and he also grew up working class, worked for the council, a union rep, unison, yet he was a Tory and there's, uh, or not a Tory, but he would vote Tory. And I think the feeling was he was I've worked really hard, done all right. I did it. So I'm a Tory. And I've mentioned Blair a few times. That's how Blair talks about his family in his book. I remember this sudden moment and he says he wants to break this link between you made it, so you're a Tory. And that I thought was a genius thing to say. So I always thought about that passion in the book and my dad and the fact that I, when I read that years later, I thought, oh, this makes sense of a lot now for me have been someone who never aware of any of these kind of political journeys most of my life I wasn't into politics and now I think back and think oh actually there are things that are that was these were the political vibes that have been going on for all my life for many years Steve O'Neill thank you again for coming on to the show Uh, you'll have to tell everybody where they can find you on the socials and tell us um, about your podcast yeah, at Steve Zero Neil on Twitter. And the podcast just starting up again, actually. Myself and my co-host Martin are doing bi-weekly check-ins on the stuff we find interesting in politics. So that's at no man's at, at pod no man's land. And that'll be interesting. Hopefully Roy will come back on at some point and talk to us about American politics, which is obviously very fascinating at the moment. It is, it is absolutely fascinating at the moment. On that note, good people. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com if you want to uh, communicate with me. If you want more deep dives with some of the panellists that we have, just like we've had with Steve, tell us, tell me via email. 
you can also log on to our YouTube channel. It's taken me years to get around to doing this, but I am actually now putting up the long form show. It's not the panel show, but the long form show is actually up on YouTube, and some of you are actually watching them. If you would like the link to the Zoom recordings, and today was a bit of a last minute thing, but generally I do post the links in the newsletter. And it's really good. Something we get sometimes 15 to 20 people belong in the audience for those and then people get to, to get to ask questions. In terms of if you want to be able to be in the audience for when we when I conduct an interview with somebody who is on the show, sign up to go to royfield.com, top it says sign up, hit that, sign up, then you'll get a newsletter for the link. So this week, so this Friday, I'm speaking to Professor Rami Kahuri from the Beirut University about the future of the Palestinian people, how we can stop the genocide, which is the Israeli attack on the Palestinian people in Gaza. You'll only have that link if you go to royfield.com, hit sign up, and then you can be there in the audience. Take care, look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Don't forget, let's just send the politics to try to think in politics. Bye-bye.